please open in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 1, Matthew 1. And if you stand, I'll be reading verses 18 through 25, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And before I read, I just would like to express on behalf of Elisa and myself our, our gratefulness for your exceedingly generous Christmas gift that you provided for us. We understand that a gift of that sort requires sacrifice and are very grateful for your willingness to do that. It is our tremendous benefit to continue to minister here at Grace and to be ministered to by you. What a precious privilege that is. Matthew chapter 1, beginning in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. But when he had considered this, behold, An angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now all this took place to fulfill what was was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Please be seated. There's war in Ukraine. There's war in Israel. We have high inflation. Recession is on the horizon. A looming uncertain election is coming. There's wokeness everywhere, transgenderism and gender confusion squeeze society in an ever-tightening vice, and paganism is spreading like a virus. Welcome to Christmas Eve 2023. But in a very real sense, welcome to every Christmas Eve. The world has always been dark, it's always been a dangerous place, not because of the circumstances, but because sin permeates everything. Yet lest you think you walked into the wrong building this morning, you have, in fact, come to the right place. For there are, although things are dark, on the eve of Christmas, the Christ of Christmas is coming, and, in fact, he has come. Now, please remember that the first Christmas Eve, the first time before Christmas, was no different. The events of Christmas, as you know, are often presented as a cute little story about a cuddly baby lying in a manger with spotted cows and fluffy sheep and maybe a little drummer boy looking on. Inaccurately, by the way. But in reality, it was nothing like this. Christmas is a scandalous and seemingly preposterous story of a betrothed couple who had had a baby without ever engaging in physical intimacy together and who had the audacity to believe that their child was not only virgin-born, but was also the promised Messiah, the savior of the entire world. However, far from being the stuff of legend, Jesus is a real person, virgin born in a dark world to a young couple with difficult problems to provide an absolutely necessary salvation. So what we'll see this morning is that Jesus is the king, the prophecy fulfilling Messiah who is virgin born to a righteous, obedient couple who are faithfully awaiting their long expected redeemer. Jesus is the king, the prophecy fulfilling Messiah who is virgin born to a righteous, obedient couple faithfully awaiting their long expected redeemer. Jesus is the only savior for a world of hell-bound sinners. Now, in Matthew chapter 18, or Matthew chapter 1, verse 18, Matthew's already gone through the physical lineage of Jesus. He provides that in verses 1 through 17. He traces Joseph's line back to David, 
And finally to Abraham, Joseph was of Davidic descent through Solomon and the kings of Judah. Although Jesus was not directly of Joseph's physical lineage. Remember, he's virgin born. Matthew's genealogy does describe his legal identity as being of the kingly line of Israel and the heir to the Davidic throne. In Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, we have the account of Jesus' spiritual lineage. That is, tracing his ancestry to God himself. So this narrative also answers the question as how Jesus became Joseph's son if Joseph had no part in the actual conception, the physical conception of Jesus. Now this entire story, these verses are very personal. There's a focus on the character and responses of those involved. So while the point of the story is Jesus and the salvation that he provides, the emphasis of the author is also on the faithful, righteous responses of the main characters. And while we do not in any way want to make individual people the overall heroes of this story or of Scripture, God is always the hero. Yet Scripture never downplays the importance of faith, patience, endurance, and righteousness in God's people. The truth needs faithful people to go forward, those whom God himself raises up and those whom he empowers. So, Let's dive in, into this story by looking at it from Joseph's perspective. That's what Matthew gives us. He gives us, really, what's going on with Joseph as the baby is about to be born. So first, let's look at Joseph's painful betrothal, Joseph's painful betrothal. And in our text, verse 18, Matthew says, now the birth of Jesus. So moving forward from the line of Jesus, which is given, really Joseph's line, the, that kingly line as we saw. The birth of Jesus Christ is as follows. He's going to lay it out for us. Now, it's interesting. The, the word he uses here for birth is really the, the genesis of. There are other words he could have used for birth. And so I think really there's an indication here that what he's giving us, and clearly in the text, is, is not a description of how Jesus was born. In fact, we don't have much of that at all. Right? You get that in Luke where there's a description of Jesus being born and laid in a manger and the circumstances surrounding that. Here, really, we have an origin story. Where did Jesus come from? Right? Past the, the, the line of Joseph, which is the line of David, the kingly line, where did he come from? How did we receive the God-man? So that's what Matthew is going to describe. Right? What is Jesus' origin? Where did he come from? And the birth of, or the origin of, perhaps, Jesus Christ. So we have his physical name, which we're going to find the origins of that physical name, the name he had as a human being. That's in the very text itself. God gave him that physical name. So that's Jesus, and we will see that that means Savior or Yahweh saves. But there's also this, the title. So his physical name, Jesus, but then his title, which is Christ, the Messiah. That's not his last name. That is who he was. He was the Messiah. And Matthew emphasizes this. He uses the word Christ, the Greek word Christos. He uses that three times in the genealogy, that the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. So he is Jesus, a human being, yet he is also the Messiah, the one who would save his people from their sins. So the origin of Jesus Christ, and he says it was as follows, and he launches into what starts as a pretty normal story, but as we will see, ends up being absolutely supernatural and in fact, very painful, very difficult. We need to remember, again, these were real people in a real situation walking through real difficulties. So it begins with a betrothal. It says, now, the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows, when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. It is fascinating. Mary is called the mother of Jesus. Joseph is never called the father of Jesus, ever. 
anywhere in Scripture. Why? Because that's not his physical lineage. As we will see, the description here is of a virgin birth. But Mary, everywhere, is called the mother of Jesus. Her physical line, her physical seed, is what, from, that from which Jesus comes. And this text doesn't tell us much about Mary, yet we know from the text in Luke and other places in, in the New Testament, we know the faithfulness of Mary. And I want to highlight that this morning. Joseph, as we will see, is a righteous man, a faithful man. But we know from, again, other passages in Scripture that Mary herself was a faithful woman. She's a faithful believer. She's an Old Testament believer, a true one who expects the Messiah. She's looking to the coming of Messiah because that's what it meant to be an Old Testament believer. You believed in God, you had faith in God, and you were looking to the Redeemer, looking to the coming Messiah. And you were bringing yourself underneath the the Old Testament law, the instructions given as an example or as a demonstration of your belief in God himself. So that was Mary. When we see her in Luke chapter 1, the angel comes to her and says, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall name him Jesus. And Mary asks him some questions. How is it that a virgin can be with child? And yet at the end of that, in verse 38, Luke 1, 38, Mary said, Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, the slave of God, May it be done to me according to your word. No more faithful saying ever. You know, the bond slave of God, I'm your servant. Whatever your word says, may it be done. Even a virgin birth. Even this amazing and yet difficult thing that will transpire in her own life. Behold, the bond slave of the Lord, says, and the angel departed from her. So Mary, a righteous, godly woman. After all these years, she believes, she rejoices in the promise of the Messiah. She's not given up hope. Despite all that had happened in Israel, even their present enslavement to the Romans. And we, we understand that she's reflecting on the nature of Old Testament prophecies when she bursts out in song in Luke 146. And I'll just read a portion of it. And Mary said, My soul exalts in the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced in God, my Savior. For he has had regard for the humble state of his bond slave. For behold, from this time on, all generations will count me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. And holy is his name. His mercies upon generation after generation towards those who fear him. Young women this morning, would you be called faithful? Are you expecting, rejoicing in, delighting in the second coming of your Savior? Are, are you living a life in light of the truths of Scripture? The young people in our text, a young couple, both of them are called, both of them are, are revealed to be faithful, those who are truly following after the Lord. Are you trusting in the Lord? Are you trusting in his word? Are you expecting, rejoicing, delighting in the work of the Savior? Young ladies, this is what should characterize you. It is true that God himself is the one who enables us to live a life of faithful expectation, to live a life of righteousness, yet it is a life that we live. And it is the expectation that one who has known God and expects and delights in the work of God serves and honors and loves him. Mary was that. And as we will see, Joseph was as well. Now, it says Joseph was betrothed to Mary, or Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And so this is really a pre-engagement or an engagement period, which is different than our engagement. MacArthur says this, By Jewish custom, a betrothal signified more than an engagement in the modern sense. A Hebrew marriage involved two stages, the kedushin, which is the betrothal, and the hupa, or the marriage ceremony. 
The marriage was almost always arranged by the families of the bride and groom, often without consulting them. I think this is a great idea, by the way. No, I don't. Sorry for my daughters. Maybe just get it all set, all right? And oftentimes it was when they were 10 or 11 or even sooner, they would get this all set. We're going to we're gonna do this by contract. It was sealed by the payment of what's called a mohar, which is the dowry or bride price, which was paid by the groom or his family to the bride's father. I've got three daughters. This is going to be the greatest thing ever. All right, I got to pay for the marriages. This, I, we need to go back to this. The mohar served to compensate the father for wedding expenses and to provide a type of insurance for the bride in the event that the groom became dissatisfied and divorced her. The contract was considered binding as soon as it was made. The man and the woman were considered legally married, even though the marriage ceremony, the hoopah, and consummation often did not occur until as much as a year later. So the betrothal period served as a time of probation and a testing of fidelity. During this period, the bride and groom had usually had little, if any, social contact with each other. So when it says that Mary was betrothed to Joseph, our modern picture is, okay, then they just started texting all the time, and they were hanging out together, and sitting on the couch and watching Christmas movies. None of that was going on, almost certainly. They probably didn't see each other much at all. Joseph was busy. He was working, preparing to bring Mary into his home and to make provision for her. So she was betrothed to Joseph. They were in this year-long betrothal period. And really, this was a test also, as, as mentioned, of their fidelity. Would they be pure? Would they not pursue the consummation of the marriage until it was to be officially carried out with, a, with that final ceremony? So she was betrothed to Joseph. And we know a few things about Joseph from other places. Book of Matthew in uh, chapter 13 says... Is this not the carpenter's son? Verse 55. Is this not the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary, his brother James, Joseph, Simon, and Judah? So speaking of Jesus, and so this gives us a word of what Joseph's trade was. He was a carpenter. Now, lest you think necessarily that he was chopping down trees and building, you know, framing homes, oftentimes that word was also used for what would be called a stonemason. It was the same word, and there was more stone in Israel than there was wood, so oftentimes this building, the building of houses and other things, would have been the shaping of stone. So probably both. He probably worked in both, both stone and wood as a carpenter. So Mary is betrothed to this young man. He was probably about 15, between 15 and 17. She may have been as young as 12, between 12 and 16. That's how young marriages often, uh, where, they were, where they were arranged and then uh, proceeding forward. The man being 15 to 17 and the woman being even younger. Now he, we know he is the son of David, as we will see. Uh, he's He's legally Jesus' father, and Jesus would be legally considered in the line of David, even though Jesus carried none of Joseph's DNA. So he was a carpenter, he was betrothed, and so that's the betrothal, all right? He's betrothed to Mary, but number two, he was betrayed by Mary. So go ahead and put down that in quotes, betrayed by Mary, and here's where our text takes a dark turn. All seems fine. We have the lineage of Jesus, we have Mary, a faithful woman betrothed to Joseph, But then it says in the end of verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, if we just stopped right there, our story would end in disaster. She's found to be with child. She's been unfaithful. And so the marriage under under Old Testament law would have to end. But notice that even before Matthew goes on to describe any of the rest of it, he immediately exonerates Mary. He's going to explain more what's going on. He doesn't give an explanation here, but he simply says, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit, quickly adding that it wasn't by Joseph, which is completely stunning to us. It should say she was found to be with child either by Joseph, that is that they they did not wait until the true time of consummation. They were involved in sexual activity before, and so there was a child. Or it could have said she 
was found to be with child by another man. Those are the only two options, humanly speaking. Either another man, she was involved with someone else, not Joseph, or she and Joseph had not waited until the marriage night and had chosen to be involved in what was then and is now immorality. That is, there is no allowance of sexual behavior or sexual intimacy until the time of the marriage. That has always been true. That is always the nature of the law of God. So here we have, when she's found to be with child, by the way, it doesn't mean she was hiding it. It simply means the child began to show. So it is clear that she is pregnant. Three months in, four months in, hard to know, maybe earlier. All of a sudden, it is realized. Joseph, one day, as he's watching and they're spending some time together, probably not much, which is probably why it took a while for him to figure this out, all of a sudden, she's, she's showing. Certainly, her parents know this. Others are watching, and the whispers begin. Mary's going to have a baby. Either Joseph has been unfaithful, you know, been unfaithful with her, or she's been unfaithful. Now, of course, there's two people that know, well, Mary knows the truth, that she's been with no one. She knows the prediction that the child in her will be conceived by the Holy Spirit. Joseph knows that he hasn't been immoral. He has not been unfaithful, right? but he does not know that about Mary. So Mary's the only one that knows the full truth here. Joseph knows partial truth. That is that he is not the one. So what's the only thing that he can assume? It is someone else. It is another man. Joseph and the people that lived 2,000 years ago were not backwards people who somehow believed that babies sprung from people's wombs without a man involved. That had never happened in the history of the universe. It never happened after this. And so it was completely unthinkable. Certainly Mary would have told him. No, this, it's, I wasn't unfaithful. This is a child conceived by the Holy Spirit. She knew that was to be true. And yet, as we see from our text, he did not believe her. Why? Because it's impossible. It cannot happen. There is no such thing as a virgin birth, ever. And Joseph did not believe it. And although we know, as we will see from our text, that he loved her, he did not believe her because it's impossible. It cannot be. So, before they came together, she was found to be with child. Now, immediately the text exonerates her, but Joseph doesn't know this yet. You've got to remember that. Nobody knows this except Mary and God himself and the angels who reveal it. They're the only ones. So the talk is sweeping the town. It's sweeping the town of Nazareth. Mary's been unfaithful. This marriage is going to have to end. There's no explanation given here. Now, again, Mary knows from Luke 1.34 the angel said that you will be with child. And she says, how can I be? How can this be? I'm a virgin. She knew that she had not been unfaithful. The angel answered and said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the Most High will overshadow you. And for that reason, the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. So Mary knows that this is a supernatural thing. She believed it. But nobody else knows, and no one else believes her. No one. Well, let's look at Joseph's righteous decision. At Joseph's righteous decision. Because in Joseph, her husband, again, called her husband because that betrothal period was that official. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man. Now, this is fascinating. Being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. What? He's righteous. He doesn't want to disgrace her, and so he's going to divorce her. Like, that doesn't sound righteous to me. That's not how we would do it today. Well, of course not, because we're not under Old Testament law. Today as there was repentance, which we would pray for, and as that couple who had been, you know, one of them or both of them together had been unfaithful, we would, we would call for their repentance, and yet we wouldn't 
we wouldn't demand that they immediately dissolve their plans for marriage. We wouldn't do that under the new covenant. We would look for repentance, and then we would encourage them prayerfully, depending on the situation, to step forward in marriage. But that was impossible under Old Testament law. There was no provision made for one who had committed adultery to enter into marriage. In fact, the, the prescribed penalty for adultery was what? Death. Now, we know that in Deuteronomy chapter 24, there was a provision made by God through the Mosaic law to write a certificate of divorce. So Matthew chooses, or so Joseph chooses that. Instead of calling her before the city to shame her and have her be stoned to death, which was his right and could have been done under Old Testament law, he chooses the second option to secretly write her a certificate of divorce and send her away. But this is righteous. He is called a righteous man, not because he was sinfully or sinlessly perfect, not because he was self-righteous according to pharisaical standards, but because he truly loved the law of God, obeyed the law of God out of a love for God and love for others. That's what it means to be righteous in this context. There is true righteousness, which the Spirit of God always empowers, empowers that through the Word of God, Old Testament and New. If anyone lives out acts of true righteousness, they do so on the basis of the power of the Spirit of God, who's transformed the heart. It just says that in the Old Testament, the Spirit of God did not come to indwell. Through the Word of God, he transformed the heart. And so the Old Testament saints, of whom Joseph is one, could actually believe God and therefore live acts of true righteousness, which this is. Again, he's not like the Pharisees who we know drag women out into public to shame them because they are self-righteous. They obey the external form of the law with no love of God and no desire to reflect the character and nature of God himself. That's pharisaical self-righteousness. That's not Joseph. He's a righteous man, and so he has no choice under the law. He cannot remain righteous and take Mary as his wife because there is no option for her not having sinned. There is a child, a real child growing within her, and so he must set her away. In his very righteousness, he must set her away. Deuteronomy 22, 23 to 27 describes what is to be done with a betrothed woman who is unfaithful. But before we move on, young men, let me ask you something. Could this be written of you, that you are a righteous man, that in your relationships you are righteous? that you are seeking to obey the laws and commands of God because you love God and because you love the young woman you're in a relationship with, or you love God enough that you are are protecting your purity, the purity of others, until such time as you will actually be married? Would you be described by a writer who was looking at your life as one who loved to obey the commands of God consistently? That's a righteous man. It's not a one-time act of righteousness. This is his character. This is what he is like. And this is what we are called to be like. This is not a moralistic, deistic righteousness. I do this because it's what the culture does. He did this because he loved God. Young men, is that your description? Do you conduct yourselves in relationships like this? Young ladies, the same. And of course, everyone else in my precious congregation. Would this be described of you? Are you so righteous that even though the one you loved was involved in immorality, you would say, I cannot take you. Again, this is under Old Testament law. All right? the, ways our, the way the new covenant law works is different. But would you be righteous enough in that time to press forward even to do this to someone whom you deeply loved, which he clearly does. He loves Mary deeply. 
and yet he cannot marry her. So this Joseph's righteous character and Joseph's righteous desire, not wanting to disgrace her, of course not. And again, this is what true righteousness does. It expresses a love for God and a love for others. He loves Mary. He does not want to do anything more than, than the, what the law would require. And so he says he didn't want to disgrace her. So ESV says, not unwilling to put her to shame. I, I love that. That's a great translation. He says, I'm not going to shame her. I'm not going to drag her in front. I'm not going to have her put to death. Although that would vindicate my own righteousness. See, in self-righteousness, that's what people do. That's what the Pharisees did, dragging the woman caught in sin before Jesus to validate their own self-righteousness. We're righteous. She's a sinner. Joseph had no desire for that, to accentuate his own righteousness by publicly displaying her sin. Oh, we're too good at that. We're too good at that. We're going to show everyone else's sin so that we look good. Not Joseph. This is a righteous man, unwilling to shame her, to put her to shame. He planned to send her away secretly, which he would have had two witnesses how this would be done. He would write a certificate of divorce in the presence of two witnesses and give her that writ of divorce and send her away. Her family would know, of course, his family would know, but the whole town would not be party to the legal procedure which would have gone forward. He clearly loved her. And as I said, in Deuteronomy 24, this bill of divorce is allowed for, and Jesus said, you remember in Matthew 18, because of the hardness of your hearts, I allowed this kind. But in this case, this was Matthew doing the very best for her. Matthew doing the best he could, or excuse me, Joseph doing the very best he could for Mary. Now, consider the anguish in Joseph's heart, the hurt that Mary must have felt if Joseph did not believe her story. He planned to do this. This was going forward. He had told her this. I don't believe you. You have been unrighteous, and therefore, this is what I must do. I love you, but I have to do this, so we're going to do it as quietly as possible. This was the plan. His love for Mary keeps him from being vindictive and angry, and yet the, the heartbreak that he must have experienced knowing that he would not be able to marry her, and knowing that she had been unrighteous. That, that was what would have had to have been the case. But Joseph and Mary, we know, have remained pure. They're above reproach, even though accusations will certainly and were at this time being made against both of them. You can imagine Joseph saying, I didn't do it. He was like, sure. Sure that wasn't you. Mary saying, we, we didn't do this. Sure. Because this is the way of the world. This is what people do. It's not the way of Christians it's not the way of believers in God, as common as it is in our society. We demonstrate righteousness by obeying the commands of God, particularly when it comes to sexual issues. It's a primary issue in our culture and a primary one by which the world holds the church accountable. You're, calling, you're telling us we shouldn't be involved in illicit sexual things, even though we love to do it. How about you, church? Well, Joseph and Mary, both pure, both honoring the Lord, both seeking to be righteous, and yet now both accused of being immoral. Yet Joseph chooses to do what's right. Imagine the heartbreak of that. This will last for their whole lives. The kind of, the kind of stigma this would have presented would have been lifelong. We know later on in Jesus' life, he's accused by the Pharisees of what? Being illegitimate. This, this, this untrue charge plagued him the rest of his life. You're an illegitimate child. We know this. We heard the rumors in Nazareth. We know what actually happened here. So that's the heartbreak. That's the difficulty going on in the situation. One that would have lifelong consequences for their reputations and for their interactions with their families. The thing that was most important. There was nothing more important than family. And here they are being cut off largely from that. 
cast aside would have most likely been the case in, in most of the situations. Well, God intervenes. That's the beauty of this. Let's go to our next point, Joseph's personal visitation. But when, right, here we have, here we have the comment. So he's planning to do this. It says, but when he had considered this, verse 20, behold, I love that word, behold, watch this. You know, watch what God is going to do. Joseph is about to do this, and everything turns on this. It's so fascinating, right? God has to call Joseph back from what would have been the lawful approach. And had Joseph done this, salvation is over. It's done. Because Jesus would never have been of the kingly line. He would not have been adopted into the line of Joseph. He would have not had the proper credentials. He would have not fulfilled the prophecies. And there would be no salvation at all. It hinges on this. First, the faithful obedience of one who would have set that aside. And now God's work to draw him back. And we'll see from Joseph a faithful response. Yes, the hero is God. Yes, the focus is on Jesus. But yes, the focus is on those who will follow forward in God's commands. Always this is what, how, he, how he works. He works through people. He works in individuals as he brings about his own glory. So he comes to Joseph personally. But when he had considered this, again, uh, the idea there is it was done. It was a done deal. He had determined that this was going to happen in his mind. No questions. Behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream. Now you might be asking, why now? The angel appeared to Mary earlier. So why not just solve this whole problem, all the angst in Joseph's life, and just show up to him earlier? Why? I don't know. Except that it seems clear that God wanted us to be able to read this about Joseph, that he was faithful, that he was so righteous that he would even have put her away. That's not an accident. That's in our text. The angel could have come sooner and solved the whole problem. God's timing is perfect. This is for us to read. And it was for Joseph to demonstrate his righteousness, empowered and Strengthened and directed by Scripture, empowered by the Spirit of God, yet nonetheless, the angel waited until he had said in his mind, I'm doing this thing. The angel shows up. Now notice, Joseph gets a secondary visitation, as it were. Mary got the real deal. The angel came to Mary. Gabriel showed up in her house and said, this is going to happen. Joseph gets the secondary, which is a dream. It's not the same. It's still God's word, right, coming to Joseph in this dream, but it's not an actual appearance. Right? So the angel appears, but appeared to him in a dream. Now, we are familiar with this kind of working of God in the Old and New Testaments, but it's fascinating. I read several commentators who were like, well, yeah, I mean, this was a common way for God to reveal his will. It was not at all common in the Old or the New Testament that God would show up in dreams. You can, you can count them on, a, on a, you know, maybe, maybe two hands. Maybe you have to pull, out a, you know, pull your shoe off and count on your foot. But the, the time where God shows up and gives instructions through dreams is incredibly rare. In the 6,000 years of history leading up to this point, or the 4,000 to this point, a little bit more. Yet, he does here, and he does because the word of God needs to come directly. So he brings that word directly, very rare, again, both in Old and New Testaments. And we would say today that the necessity of God directly proclaiming his word through a dream or through an angel showing up, unnecessary because we have all of God's word given to us now to make our decisions, to step forward in ways that we need to. We don't need to look or wait for a dream. But in this case, everything hinges here on the Messiah actually being of the line of David so that Joseph does not set her aside. And there isn't any way he could have known that without special revelation. There's no way. 
that he could have known that she was with child, not by another man, but by the Holy Spirit. So here's the angel's comfort. So in this dream, it says, Joseph, the angel says, and, and, and it would seem to me that it says here just the angel of the Lord. Sometimes the angel of the Lord is Jesus, but I don't think we would see that here. Jesus has been conceived in the womb of Mary. All right, there's that amazing thing of the God-men being there. This is probably the angel Gabriel, an angel of the Lord who speaks for the Lord. So Joseph, son of David, notice what he calls him. That's important. He gives him his title. Right, look, Joseph, let's let me remind you that you're the son of David and you're going to need to do this, this thing that I'm asking you to do. You do in light of your lineage. You need to adopt Jesus. You can't set Mary aside. This baby, you need to own this seemingly illegitimate child in order for him to be of the proper lineage. Joseph, son of David. So we know his lineage. We know that, again, that's how it's been given to us by Matthew himself. But the angel says this. But he says this fascinating thing. Do not be afraid. But in this case, oftentimes angels will say, don't be afraid because their presence inspired fear. This is a dream, remember. So he's not telling a dream Joseph to not be afraid. And he's also, he doesn't say, don't be afraid of my presence. He says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why would Joseph have been afraid of that? I submit to you the first reason he would have been afraid is a fear of God. He was afraid, as it were, to take Mary as his wife because he would have been disobeying God to do so. And the angel says, don't be afraid. You don't need to worry about dishonoring God because that would have been foremost on Joseph's mind as a righteous man. He says, you don't need to worry about God's displeasure because Mary is of child by the Holy Spirit. Now, wouldn't that be a delightful thing? if our first fear was that we would dishonor God, that in a situation in which we were seeking to please and honor him, that the first thing, wow, if I don't do that, it seems like I'm going to disobey God, so I'm afraid of dishonoring my Savior. That was Joseph. And so the angel has to come and say, don't be afraid. God isn't going to be dishonored here. Again, would it be that we had that kind of obedience, that our one fear, our one fear would not be the consequences of sin, not, not be the, the, what we wouldn't get if we, but that we would dishonor God if we disobeyed. That's, that's, what righteous, that's how righteous people feel. They don't want to dishonor their God. Now, I think also certainly around this was, was also the truth of the fact that there was a, a life of estrangement to be bought by this. Certainly that was true. I don't think that's primarily the, the, the pointing of the text here. Don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife. Why? Because she hasn't sinned. She hasn't done anything wrong. And so therefore you can take her. But I think secondarily, certainly that was in his mind, if I take her, all these bad things are going to happen. Families are going to hate us. They're going to think I, you know, perhaps my reputation is going to be destroyed. And it seems that Joseph is much more interested in God's reputation. Don't be afraid. Why? Because the child is not illegitimate. That's why you don't have to fear. You can take her and still be righteous. What a sweet thought. That we would always consider anything that we were going to do on the basis of can I be righteous and do this? Not can I get away with it? Not is it my pleasure? Not do I want to do it? Not does culture conform me or press me towards it? But is it righteous? If it isn't, you can do it with joy. If it isn't, then you ought to fear God and not do it. So the angel comes. Don't be afraid because, and we don't get any more explanation than this. The child who has been, who has been conceived, this child is there. The child is conceived. The, the, the words here are this one, that which has been conceived. 
But the New American Standard gets this right. This is a child. The Bible views life as starting at conception. That's where it starts. We learn this both Old and New Testament, and certainly even here. This is the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah at the moment of conception, not later, not when he is birthed. He's the Messiah in Mary's womb. This child that has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit did not conceive fetal tissue. The Holy Spirit conceived a child, the Son of God, the God-man conceived in Mary's womb. How did that work? All I know is this, that it was of Mary's seed, that's required from Genesis 3.15, really stated here, right? So it's not a, a, an immaculate conception, not even Mary's seed involved, no Mary's seed involved, and then the creative power of God to bring that egg to life, as it were, to bring the conception, to put it together to form a true human being. And yet, that human being also fully God. That's the virgin birth. Matthew takes great pains to emphasize the supernatural nature of Jesus' birth. It's the second time he mentions the virgin conception, and he's going to mention it a third time in the fact that this is the fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14, a virgin will be with child. So he mentions it over and over because the virgin birth is not a minor doctrine. It cannot be discarded. You, if you are a Christian, believe in the supernatural. You do not believe in a natural human Jesus born as a great prophet or somehow maybe God descending later. You believe in a true God-man. And if you do not believe that, if you do not believe the virgin birth that at the moment of conception there was not a human male involved, but a female and God himself, you are not a Christian, period. You cannot be. It does not mean that you knew this before you came to Christ. It means that afterwards, when you find this out, you accept it fully because you understand that your salvation can only happen because of the God-man. No human can die for you. No human can provide your salvation. And there is no, there is no oh, full, it's, it's, it wasn't an apparition that is an angelic being that somehow lived and walked upon the earth. Your faith is grounded in this reality of Christmas. It's supernatural. There's only one virgin birth in the history of the universe. And that's this one proclaimed here three separate times. Born of a virgin, born of a virgin, born of a virgin. What a delightful thing. Well, why do we need a virgin birth? Certainly to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 7.14 which I would hold is the true prediction of a woman who had never been with a man having a child. We'll discuss that again in just a moment. Also, to truly be the seed of the woman. Isn't it fascinating? Genesis 3.15 says Jesus will be, or the coming one, will be the seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. That's a very specific prophecy and very specific about the nature of the seed. Not Adam's seed, so it does not carry sin's curse. Not in its genetics. That's not the issue. It's not human genetics that caused the problem. It is that God determines the curse through the line of the man. And so that curse is applied to every person who is ever born. And that's done as long as there's the seed of a man. So when there's not, as in Jesus' case, the curse does not apply to Jesus. He is virgin born so he could be both God and man. Two natures living perfectly in one body without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. Is fully God so that he can express his deity. He remained God at all times. He is fully God so that the fullness of his righteousness can be imputed to us. He is fully God so that he is able to bear the infinite wrath of a holy God. But he is fully man 
that he might be the second Adam to succeed where Adam failed. He is fully man that he might be a true substitutionary sacrifice and mediator man for men. He is truly man that he might be called our brother, human as we are. He is truly man that he might be able to suffer death as a man for God can never die. He is truly man that he might be tempted in all things as we, yet without sin. This is your God, the God man, the Lord Jesus, conceived in the womb of Mary by the Holy Spirit. This is the one in whom you believe. You sit here on the basis of this reality, begins supernaturally, it's always supernatural, it ends supernaturally, there is no human Christian religion. It doesn't exist. It's based upon the God-man. All true believers are in, therefore, the realm of the supernatural, but we delight in this. Because if you believe in a man, you're not a Christian. And you can't be saved. If Jesus was only a man, we're fools to sit here this morning. We have all people. Go out and spend as much money as you can and blow it all on Christmas presents and try to have as much family delight and joy as you possibly can because that's all you are ever going to get if Jesus was not the virgin-born Son of God. But he is. What's the angel's prediction? So that's the angel's... Uh, description, the angel's comfort is that this is a righteous act that's happening in Mary. But the angel's prediction is she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus. He's giving both a prediction and a command. She's going to have a son at the first gender reveal. And also he is going to be, his name is to be Jesus. It's already predicted you can't name him anything else. You don't get to choose. You don't get to look through the top 10 list. What's the, what's the trending name? It's what most of you do. You look and go, okay, what's the trending name? So I'm going to pick that which isn't because I don't want everybody to have the same name as my kid. And then you name your kid that and a hundred of them pop up in their class. I named my son Josiah. I didn't know a single Josiah anywhere. And then we moved here and there were hundreds of them. They were everywhere. Josiah's on every corner. Doesn't make him any less special, but I just couldn't outwit the name game. Jesus is the name given, right? And this is what jo- uh, Joseph is to do. Why is he called Jesus? Well, when we name children, often it's to you know, avoid certain you know, nicknames or maybe try to keep them from being made fun of. By the way, it doesn't work either. It doesn't matter what you name your kid. Somebody's going to make fun of them. going to rhyme something bad with that name. Trust me, right? You can't avoid that. So in this case, the name is what? It means something. That used to be a big deal, not so much anymore, although many of you probably look to see what the names mean, although it's hard to figure that out. Because, uh, you know, one name means like 50 different things. But this one is very clear. Jesus means Yahweh saves. It's a Greek form of the Hebrew word and would have been very, very powerfully significant. He is Savior. He is Yahweh saves. Why? I mean, it's right here. Why do you call him Jesus? Because he is the Savior saving people from what? The Roman Empire? The difficulties that they will face? Their mother-in-laws? No, saving Jesus Saving people from their sin. That's your problem this morning. And this gets much more serious than some of those external difficulties you might face. You are not this morning being saved from the difficulty of loved ones who have died, from the grief and pain that are in your life because of difficult things you face. Maybe one of your own loved ones dying, maybe a little baby dying in your arms. These things get very serious, and we tend to view our lives as being saved from the difficulty of circumstances. Jesus didn't come to save you from the difficulty of a bad presidential election or of a recession or of the pain in your heart that you will experience from the vicissitudes of life, the difficulties you will face. That's not what he came to save you from. 
He came to save you from your personal, individual sin. Your violation of the character and nature of God, which causes you to deserve eternal hell. Not just get eternal hell, because God is grumpy, but deserve eternal hell because he is holy. That's what he came to save you from. That's the joy of Christmas. Some of you sit here this morning grieving. You're delighting in this message through tears because of the difficulties of life that you are right now facing. God does not promise you will be delivered from that. But he does promise he will deliver you through that. And one day, he will deliver you out of that. Why? Because sin will be gone. That's what you need. You need a savior to deliver you from sin, not from difficult circumstances. And that's what you have. If you're a Christian here this morning, you delight through your pain. You delight in the midst of your grief. You, you, you rejoice. You sang those songs through tears because you believe them to be true. And they are. That's the beauty of being a Christian this morning. He saves his people from their sins. And that's what we need. You need it, I need it. From those things which cause God to send us to eternal hell in his righteous judgment. Jesus took them all. That's what he came to do. Every one of them, for every one of you who will ever believe, he took your sin. This is the crux of Christmas. William Hendrickson says, is it, it is ever God, God alone, who in and through his son saves his people. While some trust in chariots and some in horses and physical strength and knowledge and reputation and prestige, position, magnificent and impressive machinery, influential friends, intrepid generals, none of these, whether operating singly or in conjunction with all the others, is able to deliver man from his chief enemy, that foe that is little by little destroying his very heart, namely sin. Or here in our text, sins. Those of thought, word, and deed, of omission, of commission, and most specifically of inner disposition. All these various ways are ways in which a man misses the mark and falls short of God's glory. It takes no less than the atoning death of Jesus and the sanctifying power of the Spirit to cleanse our hearts and lives. This is the Savior that Jesus came to be, and he is. It is why he had to come in this way. What? A delight. Well, what's the angel's command? Take Mary as your wife and name the child Jesus, those two commands. Well, before we move to Joseph's response, Matthew inserts here a reason, an Old Testament proof. I love it. Why did this take place? Why did it have to happen this way? Well, I gave you the theological reasons, and Matthew now gives you the prophetic reason. It had to happen this way. Why? So verse 22. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. God has to fulfill his promises. Not a single promise of all the over 100 specific promises of the Messiah. Not one of them can fall to the ground or he is not God. That's what we believe about the Old Testament. It all comes true. Every promise will come true. And all of the promises about Jesus' first coming are coming true, and they had to. And so he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold. So this is what was spoken of by the Lord through the prophet. Notice it is always that way. When you have the inspired word of God, it is the Lord's word through the prophet, not the prophet's word of their own design. Always it is the Lord speaking through the prophet. That is why no prophet may ever at any time in the history of the world make a prediction which isn't right, because if they do, they're not a prophet. 
They cannot. It's impossible because it's the word of the Lord. And so if it's the word of the Lord, it has to be right every time, period. Old Testament, New Testament, any time. So this command has to be, this prophecy has to be true. And it was. It was given in the Old Testament certainly to a king, King Ahab. And there was, there was initial, if you look in Isaiah 7, there are some initial fulfillments to that. I think in Scripture, you have various kinds of prophecies. You have those that are kind of typologically fulfilled, whereas there's a pattern from Old Testament to New Testament. You have those who are just directly fulfilled. It's purely future. And then you have those which have, I would call them, a, an extended fulfillment. They have a beginning in Isaiah. There's certain things promised to that king. There's even a child born, but it's not the predicted child. You find that in Isaiah 9, where it talks about this child actually is not the child that was born to a young woman at that time. It is the child that would be born. He would call, be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God in Isaiah 9. So that pushes us forward here into Matthew chapter 1, where this is a, a completed fulfillment, I would call it. It's not a secondary. It's not like there's a new thing that wasn't understood, even in the Old Testament, by those in Isaiah's time. Not fully understood, but that this was of the Messiah, that was understood. And it is fulfilled here. God always fulfills his promises. So Joseph's prophetic prominence is D, his prophetic prominence. That is, he shows up in the fulfillment of Scripture in this prophecy. You have the nature of the prophecy, again, a true fulfillment that is given. You have the specific prophecy, a virgin, that is, one who had never been with a man, the very specific technical term, specific prophecy that is made here, and it is that he would be with us. This is, this is a beautiful turn of phrase. They shall call his name. So the virgin will be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, I love the translation. Right? He probably wrote this in Greek, so Matthew almost certainly, we only, the only manuscripts we have are in Greek. Why did he translate it? Because that word would not have meant much to a Greek audience. Right? It's, again, it's a Hebraism. It's something that works its way back into the Old Testament. Emmanuel, what does that mean? We says it here. It means God with us. So everyone down throughout the ages would know, would make no mistake as to what that word Emmanuel actually means. God to be with us. Not remaining above us, not holding us at arm's length, but coming to walk among us. This is our God, the God-man who lives with us, who lives with us in our world, in our humanity, in our frailty of flesh, in even growth and development as a human, yet fully God, in our temptation, in our grief, in our pain, and in our death. He is with us. There's nothing like this. There's no religion like this. There's no savior like this. Look in vain. Go to all your religions classes. Go to all your you know, university campuses and try to find God with us like this. You will find it nowhere. This is it. You've got to bend the knee just for that. Just fall on your faces before the God who doesn't hold us at arm's length and demand from us our own righteousness. Says, I'll send my son and give it to you. I'll be with you. I'll take all upon myself. And of course, now you think, well, I mean, Jesus was with them. How about us? He's with us how? In his spirit, in the Holy Spirit, whom he sent, John 14. He says, if I don't come, the, t- this, the helper won't come. If I don't leave, the helper won't come. He remains with you and with every Christian now for all of eternity. He'll never leave you. Intimately, bound up in your own inner man, the Spirit of God resides, bringing the presence of Jesus because he is one with the Trinity. He, it's one in essence. 
God remains with us. Well, let's finish our story. What did Joseph do? There's still a response to be made. Joseph could hear that dream. He could respond to that dream and say, I just had a bad night's sleep. I just had some bad figs the night back. You know, I, I'm not sure. Or he could just simply said, I'm not going to do that. I'm not willing to stake my righteousness on a dream. I'm not willing to stake my reputation on a dream I got. He could have gotten up and said, I'm done. And put her away and walked on with his life and we would have no savior. None. Look what he does. Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded and took Mary as his wife. I mean, it hinges on this, does it not? Humanly speaking, does it not hinge right here? If he gets up and walks out the door and says, forget it, I'm not putting my life on the line like that, we're done. Now, is is Joseph the hero? No, but does he have to respond in obedience? Yes, and does he? Yes, how? Because the Spirit of God enables him to do that. Through the word and by the spirit of God, he obeys. And he does what? He does exactly what the angel says immediately. He awoke and did. I love this. How long will it take you to obey the commands of scripture? We have everything we need right here. No dreams for you. Everything clearly laid out. You you have a dream three weeks later. You're like, what was that? I'm not even sure what that was. Well, you have a command of scripture and you go back and, you know, I hear this sometimes in the counseling office. What was that? Well, let's point to chapter and verse. It's right here written down until Jesus returns. How long will it take you to obey? To step forward in what God commands so that you might also accomplish the work of God in your generation. That's what we're called to do. The text points to that, that we would obey. And he obeyed completely. He took Mary as his wife. He kept her as a virgin. I think an important point for us who are reading later, there is no chance that that child was of Joseph. None, because he kept her as a virgin until then. Not after that. We know he had brothers and sisters. But until then, he keeps her a virgin so there would be no confusion. And the text tells us this. And she gave birth to a son, and he called him Bill. No, he called his name Jesus. He obeyed even in the name. He could have said, I'll take her as my wife, but I'm not naming him that. I'll name him what I want to name him. So in doing this, he does what? That's an official adoption. He gives him a name, right? He claims him as his own. So now Jesus adopted into the family of Joseph from the seed of Mary, doubly qualified both from from the genetic lineage through Mary, but also the kingly lineage through Joseph. He's adopted. It's done. He is now truly of the Davidic line carrying the Davidic qualifications necessary to be the Messiah because Joseph, by the Lord's grace, was faithful and Mary was faithful and God was faithful underneath all of that to bring us his Savior. A couple questions for you this morning. Are you a righteous man like Joseph? I don't mean self-righteous. I don't mean culturally righteous, a good Christian man, I mean truly righteous, with a righteousness from the Spirit of God that loves God and longs to obey His Word. Are you a righteous woman like Mary? Are you looking for ways in which you can be used of the Lord to accomplish His purposes? That's what you can think about on Christmas. He's already come the first time. There's righteousness to be done to bring in His second coming. Do you respond quickly and completely to the Word of God and the Scriptures, which carry the same weight and authority as if God had sent an angel to speak to you directly? In fact, they're more sure. We have the more sure word. 
Do you recognize the need to be saved from your sins and not just from your circumstances? Do you realize that the true evil lies within your heart and not in the culture? Do you understand that apart from salvation in Christ through repentance and faith that you will surely suffer eternal punishment in hell and that you will deserve every second of that punishment? Do you realize that? If you do, the Spirit of God is working because very few do. If you realize that this morning, then bend the knee. You're right there. You're so close. And the Spirit of God will finish what he started in your heart to bring that conviction. I deserve this. And so you will flee to Jesus, who is the one who took your penalty, who took your wrath, who died your death, and you will receive his righteousness. Don't waste this Christmas without receiving this gift. Do you embrace the fact that God has come to be with us? taking on our flesh, wrestling with our temptations, suffering our death, and bearing the wrath that we deserved? Do you understand that he remains intimately connected with all true believers through the indwelling Holy Spirit and that he will never leave you or forsake you? There's no better gift than that. You don't need another gift this Christmas. Enjoy them tomorrow. I'll enjoy mine. But you don't need another one. The gift of the Holy Spirit is the greatest gift ever. And will you take hold of this truth? Christians, and live powerfully for your Savior, joyfully and continually proclaiming the life-changing truth of the Messiah who became God with us. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent your Son. Thank you that you did not remain aloof from us, demanding of us our own effort, demanding that we would somehow live up to your perfect holiness, but instead sending your Son to die to, to, to live a perfect life, to take our sins, to take your wrath, that we might be able to live out true righteousness because we have been credited with your righteousness. Father, I pray that we would rejoice in that this morning, that we would be a changed congregation as a result of that. And Father, I pray that there's one person here who has not bent the knee to you, who recognizes their sin, that they would turn to you this morning. In your precious name, amen.